John chapter 11, uh, kind of keep going in our story uh, through this, this incident, and we're not going to get to the end of it for a couple weeks yet, but uh, John chapter 11, and we're going to take a chunk from ch- verse 28 down to verse 37. Uh, and I don't have anything uh, really new to tell you today or anything um, that's going to shatter your, your mind, but I do have some profound things to tell you, some things that I think are keystones for how we build our life, things that, um, that can either shake your faith and wreck your faith or establish it and, and, and let it grow uh, before the Lord. So how many of you have heard this phrase before? Real men don't cry. How many of you have heard that phrase before? All right. Real men don't cry. Real men don't cry. Okay. Well, I learned this at a very young age, well before I was a man. Um, I remember kindergarten was one of those like half-day kindergarten things where I don't even remember anything about kindergarten except that my teacher's name was Mrs. Marks, which I thought was pretty cool because it was my name. You know, I remember that. I remember clay, some clay, in a, but it was only a half day, so I don't remember. But I remember first grade because it's when I first became aware that there were other children in my class, you know, like you got people's names and you started interacting with them and you weren't just scared of the whole thing and whatever. And I remember a recess, we played a football game, which looking back on it was probably pretty pathetic, but, you know, it felt like we were playing, you know, the Eagles versus the Cowboys or something. We were out there having, you know, fun. And I remember that, on one day, my team won, and the other, the other team, there was, a, there was a very good athlete, or, or a kid who thought he was a good athlete, on the other team. And when they lost, he cried that they lost. Now, this is only first grade, but we were all big, grown-up first graders. You know, we weren't those kindergartners. We were and wouldn't you know that we quickly told him that he was a crybaby, Right? Right, very, very quickly, we told him that he was a cry baby and that, you know, this young man should not be crying about it. Don't cry about it. What's wrong? It's just a football game, right? Now, we would have been crying if we had lost, but we, we were feel free to downgrade him. It was like those, those words just summed up both the accusation that you're a baby as well as the proof because the tears are on your face that you are insignificant, that you are less than us, that you are weak that we can look down at you because you're vulnerable, because you're sad, because you're crying. The truth in life is that even though we have slogans like real men don't cry, it doesn't mean that they don't. Even though we would like to be impervious to pain, we are not, even men. When times get hard, when things get rough, when life swallows you up, we fill up with emotion from time to time. When I walked my daughter down the aisle, I cried. It was filled up with emotion. Matter of fact, my eyes filled up with tears many times over Kylie and Kara's life as I pictured six-year-old Kylie or eight-year-old Kara or 12-year-old Kylie and thought about one day I have to walk them down the aisle. You know what I mean, dads? You know what I mean? It's an emotional thing. You suffer loss. You lose people who are dear to you. And just because you're a guy or just because you don't want to hurt, you can't just opt out. Pain doesn't come and ask you, would you like to hurt? Pain just comes and you hurt. There have been times in my life, few moments where I thought the pain of sorrow might just kill me. It was that big. While we learn early in life that crying makes us weak, 
or that negative emotions are something to be avoided, we simply can't do it. You know, I, I grew up in a family where nothing was ever supposed to be a problem. It wasn't supposed to bother you, right? Don't be sad about that. No, that's no big deal. It's not a problem. Don't worry about that. I grew up in that environment because we were just supposed to forget about anything that was negative or bad or whatever and just move on. You just move on. You don't care about it, right? Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. There's no switch. And the truth is, we're not alone in pain because in the story we're going to look at, Jesus Christ himself cries. So now, before I get into this, let me say this. I'm not suggesting to you all that weeping in sorrow is the highest pinnacle of your experience. I'm not telling you that what you should aspire to is crying all the time, right? If you walk up to somebody who's like an Eeyore, you know, and you're like, how are you? And they're like, well, let me tell you. You know, if you're always down and you're always sad and everything's always a problem and everybody's always out to get you, you kind of like, you're probably not going to have a lot of friends because that's heavy, right? And the truth is you're miserable. So I don't even know why people like to live like that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't I don't get it. Like, you should be pushing towards joy. You know, you should be trying to find a way to get past that. If you're always on the verge of tears, something's missing in your life and you probably need to to sort some things through. Because the truth of the word of God is that we are capable and called to rejoicing. We are called to living with joy that is full. And we even see in the Old Testament that the joy of the Lord is our strength. The, the, the experience of knowing God should be one where joy is normal, is regular in your life. And if it isn't, if all you have is sorrow, you might point at your circumstance and you might point at people, but the truth is the problem is in you. Not because those things aren't sad and not because they won't make you cry, but because you're living in it and God has more for you. So I don't want to give the impression as we talk about this today that, that crying is the best thing you can do. But, but here's the truth. There are times in our life when all of us feel crushed, when, when we feel completely alone, when we've suffered loss on a scale that seems impossible to express to anyone else. Do you know what I'm talking about? My loss is so big, I couldn't explain it to you if I tried. There's a precious truth in God's word for you today. It's based on the nature of God, and it's expressed in this short excerpt from the story that we've been going through. Because when you were in that moment, and when you're begging God, you're pouring out your heart to God for rescue, God, come save me from this pain. is going to kill me. It's going to swallow me up. When you're asking for answers, God, why did this happen, and what does it mean? When you're asking God to bring peace in the midst of pain, God, just give me peace. And nothing happens, and it seems like there's no response. You can feel like God is far far, far away. And your pain feels like it's very, very close. And that contrast is almost unlivable. But what I want you to see today is how close God chooses to be to us in our pain. What his response to our pain is in loss or suffering. And the truth is this. I hope that, this, that the Spirit will do this in our minds and our souls. The truth is that God's response to our suffering, God's response to our loss may be much more simple and profound than if God were to give us an explanation or an answer to our why, 
or if God were to do some amazing miracle that solved all our problems. God's choice of how He interacts with us in pain is incredible, and I hope you see that today. So start with me uh, at verse 28. We're going to go down to verse 32, and we're picking up a story. Let's, let's catch up before we read it. Picking up a story here. Jesus has some friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and one of his friends, Lazarus, has become ill. Deathly ill, seriously ill, to the place of they have despaired of him getting better without Jesus coming to heal him. So they send word to Jesus, come and heal him. The one that you love is sick. Hoping, most likely, that Jesus will arrive before Lazarus dies to heal him. But Jesus doesn't come. Jesus actually waits for a couple days before he even leaves to head out on the road. And he arrives after Lazarus has been dead for four days. Last week, we saw the amazing words of Jesus to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one who takes you through death to life, to eternal life. And so now we pick up Jesus talking with Mary. Last week was Martha, this week's Mary. And so verse 28, after she had said this, that is Martha and what she said we looked at last week, she, that is Martha, went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. All right, so here's kind of the story. The story is Martha's interacted with Jesus outside of the city, and she comes back to Mary, evidently with a message from Jesus. And she pulls Mary aside privately so that no one else around her hears or knows what she's saying to her sister. It's possible that she did this because of who else is at the funeral, and we'll see that in, in a minute. But the first thing I want you to notice is this. Mary is sitting in her home in the midst of pain, having suffered a devastating loss, the loss of her brother. And there are people around, many people evidently, who are crying and wailing and sorrowing with her. And Jesus, when he shows up, he asks for her. Martha comes back to him and says, Jesus is asking for you. He's coming to seek her in her pain. He's, he says, I want to talk to Mary. He doesn't say, I want to talk to her to tell her how ridiculous this is, how this is such a small thing, how this won't matter in eternity, how this is no big deal, and she should just get over it. That's not why Jesus said, I want to talk to Mary. And you'll see that as we go through this. Jesus says, I want to talk to Mary because she's hurting. And so he asks for her. He wants to hear her and feel her grief and share it, enter it with her. That's unbelievably incredible news because think about this. Jesus is God in human flesh. He is God Almighty come down from heaven. As Martha said the verse before this, you are the one come down from heaven. So think about that. Jesus came from heaven. How much sorrow did Jesus have to suffer in heaven? He didn't have to suffer any of it, did he? He chose to come to this earth to be 
interacted with, to be bumped up against people who are hurting. And when Mary is hurting, he goes to her and says, I want to talk to you. The master asks for the hurting. He didn't need to enter the troubles and trials of this world, and he certainly didn't need to borrow the pain or share it with someone who was hurting. But in her moment of grief and suffering, Jesus wants to see her. Do you see how personal and caring the Savior is? Her grief isn't over because Jesus showed up. And I think sometimes we get this idea that if we're spiritual people and we're people of faith, that none of this stuff should make us sad. It's not true. Jesus is standing in front of her and she is weeping because she's sad. Jesus' answer to her grief was not to take it away, but to hear it from her, to witness it, to share it with her. He wanted to be with her. And so when we're hurting and broken, here's something that I know about Jesus. He's asking for you. He's seeking you out. Not because he's trying to make it all better and fix everything. Not because he's going to wave his magic wand. Not because he's going to tell you how you've fallen short and you should have trusted him more and this shouldn't be a big deal to you. But he want, because he wants to hear from you and you matter to him. Your pain is important to him. He wants you to know that he is with you in it. And so Jesus doesn't force Mary to come to him, but he asks for her. And some of you, because Jesus has been asking for you, because your pain has been so great, and you've resisted it because you want an explanation. You want to know why God didn't take all of his great power and fix this or stop it from happening in the first place. And you want no part of coming to Jesus. He won't force you, but he's asking for you. Maybe it's been a while since you've come to Jesus. So Mary goes to Jesus. And she says she got up quickly. She was seated in the house with the mourners around her. And when she hears that Jesus wants her, he's asking for her, she gets and goes quickly. And there are people around who go, what's she doing? She's moving so fast. She's got to be going somewhere. She must be going to the tomb to mourn there. But she's not. She's going to Jesus. She doesn't tell anybody. And it may be, I mean, we see this term here a couple of times, the Jews. Throughout the book of John, the words the Jews have represented the spiritual leaders who are trying to kill Jesus. Now we see the same term here for the people around Mary who are mourning with her. Makes more sense why Thomas said, um, Jesus, why do you want to go there? They're trying to kill you. He's not just talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about at that funeral, people are going to be there that have already picked up stones with the intent to end your life. They're going to be there, and you want to go there? You, you got a death wish or something. This is crazy. And so we have this picture, most likely, of these religious leaders around Mary. Come to mourn with Mary. Even knowing that she is a close friend of Jesus. Even knowing Martha is a close friend of Jesus and Lazarus as well. But they share her sorrow and their concern for her well-being. Isn't there something about death that does that? It should, anyway. I've, I've seen families where a funeral is just an opportunity for more fighting. I've seen that. But... By and large, doesn't something like that demand that you take a deeper look at your life? Isn't it like this, this window, this unique opportunity for the kingdom of God? 
I mean, the truth is death is an awful reality of life. But there's something about it that breaks through to the hardest heart and the most stubborn cynic. We may not like thinking about when this life is over and what's that going to mean for me. But when death comes close to us, we almost have no choice but to reflect on it. And so we've got these Jews who want to end Jesus' life, like uh, flippantly, coming to Mary in her time of need. I read um, this week that Charles Spurgeon said this, and I thought this was a good way of saying it. He said, He who does not prepare for death is more than just an ordinary fool. He is a madman. The reality we all know is that we all have a date with death, right? Death rate, statistically speaking, right 100%, like right there. Everybody, like, they've done studies. Death rate, 100%. You know it. I know it. I don't go around thinking about it all the time. But when I'm at a funeral, I think about it, don't you? We may not like to think about it, but trying to fool yourself into thinking that you have a more important issue to settle in your life than being prepared for this life to end and going to whatever is next is the biggest insanity there is. If you got every decision in your life right but missed that one, you blew it. There's nothing more important than your soul. And so in those moments, it gives us a unique opportunity to share our faith and to come to what's important in life. And so Mary arrives at Jesus, and she says the same words that Martha says. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same confusion, same frustration. She falls at his feet. She's not accusing Jesus. She's not saying you blew it. She's just expressing her sorrow to him. She's used to being at Jesus' feet. We'll see. Before, she was at Jesus' feet when he was teaching and Martha was serving, and she was at Jesus' feet learning. Next chapter, she's at Jesus' feet washing his feet with her hair and her tears and pouring ointment on, perfume on his feet. She's familiar here. It's a tender spot for Mary. It's the way that she interacts with Jesus in humility and honor and closeness to him. Mary comes to Jesus and she feels close to him in her sorrow, in her loss, confident that his heart was for her and that she mattered to him. It's a question of, do you believe God is faithful? And so when life gets big, do you get stressed out or do you get close to Jesus? When worries pile up, do you stay up all night? Do you wring your hands? Do you grow more gray hairs? Or do you go to Jesus? He's asking for you. Are you sure of his love? Maybe the reason you don't go is because you don't think he cares. Are you sure of his love? If not, you can be. All right, so let's pick it up. Verse 33 down to verse 36. That's what's highlighted next. Here's what it says. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus sees Mary crying. Jesus sees the Jews crying, and he feels it. The words here is, when he saw them, he was deeply moved. It is a powerful description of an emotional reaction. I'll give you a couple other instances where this wording is used. It is a reaction that the disciples had to Jesus walking on the water. 
when disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, they were deeply moved. Do you get the idea? I mean, just think about it. If you were out on a boat in a storm, worried about dying, and you saw glowing Jesus coming to you on the water, you would be deeply moved. This is not a small reaction. This is a big reaction, right? It is also used about Zacharias seeing the angel in the temple predicting the birth of John the Baptist. Again, imagine, you go into this holy of holies place. You go in to offer sacrifice. You go in worried about if you're clean enough or you're going to die. I mean, you're kind of on edge when you go in to make sacrifices. Okay? And as you go in, worried about making sure you have the right stuff on and the right things in your hands and you're not touching anything you're not supposed to and doing what you, in the right order and all that stuff, here's this angel that shows up And it says, he was deeply moved. That's the idea of Jesus here. When Jesus saw the sorrow of Mary and the sorrow of the Jews, he was deeply moved. The word is a little bit difficult to get your head around, but it wasn't that Jesus looked at them and said, why are you crying? People who are believers, people who follow me don't cry. He didn't say that. He didn't say this is a small thing or a meaningless thing or this irritates me that I have to deal with this stuff. It wasn't a roll your eyes thing like, what's the the problem now? The word actually means anger. And the way that it's described here, it suggests that Jesus, whatever this strong emotion was, made Jesus shake. Many commentators have tried to describe what that means exactly. But I think the one that fits the theme of this passage the best is this. Jesus looks into the eyes of his friend, into the eyes of these he's created. And he sees this sorrow, this this grief piled up in them. And he is angry about how needless this grief is. Because this wasn't his plan. You see, God created us. As human beings in the Garden of Eden, as we read in Genesis 1, I know that's not popular to believe that, Genesis 1 and 2, but that's actually in the Bible and we believe the Bible, so we're going to believe that, okay? And when God created mankind, He created them in a relationship with Him, a relationship of trust and dependence, a relationship where life would not come to an end. He even made a tree called the tree of life that if you ate of it, you'd live forever. Pretty cool stuff. But mankind said, no thank you to God's plan, And went and did exactly what God said not to do. And brought death as an experience to us. It is not something we were designed to go through. It's something that is overwhelming to every single human being I've ever met. It's too big for us. And so Jesus looks at these people going through this experience and he shakes with emotion because you didn't have to, it didn't have to be like this. This is not the way we wanted it to be. And so his response, after seeing them weeping, after being moved in his spirit, Jesus says, where have you laid him? And so he says, listen, let's go with the crowd. Let's go to Lazarus' tomb. Let's let's go get this full experience. Let's go to that place that's the evidence of this loss. Let's face it. Very customary for people to go to the tomb to weep. That's what the Jews thought Mary was doing when she got up. And so when Jesus gets to the tomb, he does something extraordinary. And I'm not talking about what's going to happen when we talk about next week. He raises him from the dead. He does something extraordinary. It's in this short little verse. Jesus cries. 
He enters into sorrow, into the experience. He experiences it too with Mary and Martha, with all these people. Their emotion doesn't just bounce off him. The impending miracle of raising Lazarus doesn't make the grief meaningless. Just because tomorrow God knows everything will be okay, he's not like saying to you like, get over it. It'll be fine. He goes and he experiences the grief with them. We often hear about how the hope of heaven should override the sorrows of today. And to an extent that's true. But we are flesh. We are human beings. And our grief is not so easily silenced. And God knows that. And so as we walk the path of sorrow, Jesus chooses to walk with us. He cries with us and his heart breaks with us. Isaiah said it in Isaiah 53. He is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. This verse, this this word, Jesus wept, is not the wailing of the weeping in the verse before, the the out loud, the the big, the the full release of, of sorrow. It is a quiet crying. That it's almost like the emotion filled up inside of Jesus so much that it just, you know the feeling, it just started leaking out of his eyes. You know what I mean? It was just so much, he felt it so much that he began to weep with them. I've said often to those who are in grief or in pain, Jesus' heart is broken for you and with you. And I believe that. If you are hurting today, if your heart is broken for something, If there's something that's weighing you down, Jesus is not like, hey, no big deal, get over it. Jesus is like, bring it to me. Let's talk about that. I want to know your experience. I want to know how that feels. And I will feel it with you. The Jews respond by saying, see how he loved him. His emotion is a clear indication to those around that Jesus loves Mary and Martha and especially Lazarus, that Jesus experiences loss. They note this emotion as genuine and personal. He isn't crying for someone else. He's hurting because of his own love for Lazarus, for Mary, for Martha. Folks, I don't know how to say it. How much he loves you. That he would choose to leave the splendor of heaven, come down to this nutty place, this crazy mixed up world, and walk the human experience that you and I know so well. He didn't have to. He's God Almighty. But he came to walk it with you. And he wants you to know that he gets it. That he wants to enter your pain, your sorrow, to walk with you in grief and through pain. David says in the Psalms, he walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And so I would ask you, when you have that experience where your heart is shattered, does your broken heart have room to see that his heart is broken too? Can you see through your tears to see that he weeps with you? That message is, from this story, is something that gives you a taste of the faithfulness and the goodness and the love of God. 
There are some who like to dwell on the idea that God is sovereign and nothing happens without God doing it and all that. But I will tell you, the picture from the Word of God is not a callous God who tragedy uh, dispenses to people and, and, and runs over these people and throw these people into hell and everything's fine with Him. The picture of God in the Word of God is a God who cares deeply for you. So much so that unimaginably, he said, I care so much about their pain that I will take it from them and experience it myself for them. Do you believe that God cares about you like that? Or has your experience in life told you that people don't care, so why should God? We need a grip on the faithfulness and the goodness of God Almighty. How can we shine a light to the world unless we genuinely live in the reality that He loves us. Oh, how He loves us! That He is broken with us, that He weeps with us. But some say, well, He doesn't care. Verse 37. Some of them said, Could not He who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? It's the other response, and it's one that, I know, I've been there. The painful event itself is proof that He doesn't care. I don't care that he cries with me. I don't care that his heart... He let it happen. And that's what they said, isn't it? Couldn't he have shown up? Why didn't he show up? Doesn't he care? This, this is in response for some. He says, but some of them said, but some of them said to see how he loved him. Their response to don't you see how Jesus loves him is no, he didn't love him. He would have been here. He would have stopped this if he loved him. They put into words the same idea that Martha and Mary say to Jesus, but with a different heart. The truth in the Word of God, the truth in the stories of of, of God's people is, you see over and over again where God's people cry out for salvation. They cry out for God to rescue them. But God does not always or even often stop the pain from showing up. What God does is something more important than sidestepping pain or bypassing it altogether. Our God, who in no way is pressured or maneuvered or unable to escape, chooses to go through the pain with us. He experiences it with us because it matters to Him and because we matter to Him. Do you believe that? That's the invitation today. We're going to have the girls come up and close in a song here. And I want to ask you as they come up and get ready, maybe you've been pouring your heart out to God over and over and over again about some things, asking God, why? Why did this thing happen? Why did that thing happen? Maybe you're waiting. Maybe you're still waiting for an answer. You're waiting for God to respond and tell you why. What if God never tells you? And what if that's not what you need? What if what you really need to know is that God is right there in the pain with you? That when he said, I will never leave you or forsake you, that's what he was talking about, at least in part. When he said to his disciples, I will go with you even to the end of the world. End of the world's pretty tragic, isn't it? Pretty filled with stress and sorrow and pain and loss. End of the world. I will go with you even to the end of the world. You may never get an answer to your questions about why. But I invite you to see a Savior weeping at the tomb 
for a man he's about to raise from the dead. To know and believe that our pain matters to him in ways that we may have never understood. If you look up in that time of brokenness, don't look for an answer. Don't look for an escape. Look for a God who is with you. Who could have stayed clear, but chose to bear it with you. To walk the path of tears with you. Let His love, His faithfulness, His goodness comfort you, refresh you, encourage you as we face those moments in life that threaten to eat us up because they hurt so bad. So let's close today with this.